You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, a place uh, our guest today needs to visit at some point, the oldest Irish bar in Indianapolis. And McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You might find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Gareth Russell. He is an author. He's an historian. He's a brilliant writer. I have several of his books, and now I've read two of them. The second one being, let's, I'm going to hold it up here, read it perfectly. Do let's have another drink. The dry wit and fizzy life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. It is one of the absolute best books I've ever read on the royal family. Mr. Russell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and for saying that. I really, really appreciate it. For years, if, if memory serves, the Queen Mother was the most popular member of the royal family, certainly, let's say, behind Princess Diana. Mm-hmm. What made her so popular? That's a great point. And I think certainly, you know, we've recently seen cultural depictions of her, the movie W.E., the hit show The Crown, haven't been as sympathetic. So sometimes I think it surprises people to, to hear just how popular she was. And pretty much between 1923, when she married into the royal family, and 2002, when she died, she was always number two or number one in the popularity polls, as she say. I think that the ingredient, sort of the cocktail of her popularity, was uh, two-part duty, one-part fun. And that's what people seemed to admire about her. There was always a sense in Britain that she had 
a good sense of humor. There were stories, even when I was a child, circulating about her one-liners. I spoke to a lady here in Belfast in Northern Ireland who remembers seeing the Queen, the then Queen Consort, the future Queen Mother, visiting the city during the Blitz, during the Second World War when Belfast was being bombed by the Nazis. And she said everyone was saying, oh, you know, you just know the Queen would be so much fun at a party with a couple of glasses of whiskey. <laughs> so people had that impression of her. And then also she was just someone who had the most indefatigable sense of duty. She was the embodiment of, if, if there was a mascot for keep calm and carry on, it was Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. It really was. And, and, you know, she, the last public engagement she carried out was the recommissioning of an, an aircraft carrier for the Navy when she was 101 years old and she turned up with two walking sticks. So I think people admired that sense of duty to the country and also this very palpable sense of personality that she had. I'm going to violate my own uh, sense of of structure here because I like to do these things in a certain order. But you mentioned duty, so let's let's talk a little bit very quickly. I wrote, uh, excuse me, I read about a month ago the book Crown in Crisis about the abdication of Edward VIII. Mm. It's very, very, very good. And was her was Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother's relationship with Wallace? And Edward VIII slash Duke of Windsor, was it fractured not only because of what they put her husband through, huh. King George VI, but because they abrogated that sense of duty that you just articulated? Yeah, I think there's a, a quite frustrating rumor that bears no relation to fact at all that she secretly was in love with him for 16 years or something with her brother-in-law. Uh, that's it's not her reasons are much more cold and clear cut. She was a teenager when the country was in the First World War. She was a Scottish aristocrat. One of her brothers was killed. All of them came back either mentally or physically destroyed by their service for Britain during the First World War. Her homes as a teenager, her parents turned their homes into military convalescent homes. She had seen absolute horror stories of what people had gone through for duty to Britain. And she had a very um, Manichaean mind, I would say, in the sense that something was either right or wrong. There was not a lot of grey with Elizabeth. And when it came to the country and the monarchy, it was particularly clear cut. She had absolutely no sympathy for someone who let the side down. And as far as she was concerned, if her brother Fergus could give up his life for Britain, then her brother-in-law Edward should be able to give up his um, mistress. That was it. That was exactly how she saw it. The other thing really that she... I think where she was also justified in being very angry was Edward VIII kept all these plans to himself. There was no interest in him in letting his younger brother know that he was going to become king and emperor with no preparation. He gave them three days notice. And Elizabeth found out that she was queen consort when she was lying in bed listening to the radio with pneumonia. Uh, So I think there was shock and anger. Where I would say... Elizabeth's attitudes were less um, 
commendable. I, I wouldn't say they were, they're understandable from, from a certain perspective, but I don't think they were fair, was she really uh, lumbered a lot of the blame onto Wallace. And she referred to her at one point as the lowest of the low. And I think in that sense, she was missing the point that really Edward VIII had made this decision despite Wallace begging him not to- Literally begging him, literally begging him. Begging him not to give up the throne for her. You're absolutely right. It what she really was so aware uh, that how do you live up? How do you live up to that for the rest of your life? How do you live up giving up a crown for? And she felt this pressure to keep Edward VIII entertained. And he wasn't the brightest bulb in the box. So I think trying to keep him intellectually stimulated was um, tricky. And he was an incredibly difficult, pedantic man. And she, Wallace spent the rest of her life trying to curate a lifestyle that made Edward VIII feel that giving up the crown had been worth it. And it put Wallace under an enormous amount of pressure. And Elizabeth slightly towards the end thawed toward Wallace but really for 20-30 years she lumped Edward and Wallace together and blamed them with with equal vigor and dislike for the abdication crisis did she also blame them for the I think it's fair to say young death of her husband George VI what was he 50 something when he died yeah he was 56 and she was 51 the queen when she became queen mother as, as his widow and well, I, she absolutely blamed them for it and said that the shock had killed him and that, that you know, there's a great, there's a line I, uh, one of her friends told me that someone had once said to the then Queen Consort Elizabeth, they'd just seen the ex-king at the Duke of Windsor. And he looked so well-rested. And uh, Elizabeth fired back with, yes, who has the lines underneath his eyes today, and which is her husband. She she was, again, it's understandable, but wrong from Elizabeth, because what killed George VI was he was an extremely heavy smoker. Mm-hmm. And it was lung cancer. But she, she had a... Um, she had great interest in homeopathy, so I don't think she was always very respectful of, of traditional medicine as a, or um, medical uh, orthodoxy. So she felt that the stress had directly contributed to whatever had killed him, and she did blame her brother-in-law for it. Let's go back a little bit to to her birth. She really she had a foot in in, in two centuries, I say, if we were being completely accurate. Yeah, uh, born during the reign of Queen Victoria. How much did her early years, let's say, from birth till till uh, she met Bertie? Yeah, at the time, who I think proposed to her th- three times or four times, three times, which is referenced in the book in the movie The King's Speech, which we'll get to later yeah. in the podcast. Um, how much did did being a Scot mm. influence her, uh, being in from such a large family, and and Today, we can't really, even though we try, and you do a terrific job in your book, The Emperors, that deals with this, the impact of World War I on Europe and Europeans. How did World War I shape her as she moved into her adult life? That's a great question, because I think... It, certainly, I did not anticipate, foolishly, going into this, I did not anticipate just how impactful the First World War would be. So to, be, to begin at the beginning with her um, birth under Victoria and her Edwardian childhood, 
it was formative in that it was extremely happy. You know, her, her parents, Claude and Cecilia, were very happy together. He was the Earl of Strathmore, the 14th generation of the family to hold magnificent Glam's Castle in eastern Scotland, which uh, Shakespearean readers may recognise as um, the home of Macbeth and where he um, stabs uh, his cousin, uh, Duncan. She used to grow up convinced there were, it's allegedly the most haunted place in the British Isles. And she was very comfortable with ghosts her whole life. Indeed, um, dressing up as ghosts and jumping out to terrify her poor sister, Rose, who was less amused than by that story than I was. But um, it was a very uh, Downton Abbey-esque to, uh, childhood, 14 servants, which wasn't huge by uh, aristocratic standards. But her childhood was going from Scotland to their estate in England to going to visit her widowed grandmother in Italy. It was very steady. It was, um, yes, you say there were, she had three sisters, tribe of brothers. She was particularly close to the youngest, David. And she grew up where the parents were always hosting guests. So where it really shaped her was outgoing, surrounded by love, but also constantly meeting people who were important and were older than her. And it made her very comfortable talking to people. You know, as a child, she was sitting next to the Earl of Rosebery, who was the former leader of the Liberal Party and Prime Minister, and chatting to him about her new dog. And then she would also be taken around the estate by her parents, and she would talk to the farmers and the gardeners and the staff. So really what happened was she being able to talk to people from multiple different backgrounds, people who were older than her, theoretically intimidating. And the up, and that obviously, from a royal perspective, is incredibly valuable in terms of what you'll end up doing. But I think when you get to that, you know, darker moment when she walked, she was in the theatre celebrating her 14th birthday with a trip with her mother when Britain declared war in Imperial Germany in 1914. And there's some really heartbreaking stuff when she says, I will never be happy again. That's how she felt when she was 17, because every single day you heard about someone else who died. And so as much as the childhood was formative in a a good way, the First World War was something that was traumatic for her. And and that shaped an inner steel, I think. So that the childhood gave her the outward manners and confidence and the war gave her this inner core of um, determination and grit. Did she sense at the time that the the end of the war, the outcome, and you had at least three monarchies toppled, um, Russia, Imperial Germany, and Austro-Hungarian, that the world had changed, that society had changed? Was she able to, to kind of make that sort of strategic judgment, like things are different now? I, in a, yes and no. No in the sense that unlike the royal family who she would marry into, Elizabeth had no sympathy for the Germans and she had no German relatives. And you know, throughout the war, their family toast at dinner was to hell with the bloody Kaiser. So actually when the Kaiser fell, she was so anti-German by that point that she felt delighted that the German monarchy had imploded. A little bit later, when she'd married into the royal family, she went on a state visit to Berlin and she was shown round the former imperial family's rooms mm. in Berlin. And she said it was quite sad to see that but she was not moved she she certainly unlike her mother-in-law queen mary had no real interest in in seeing the german monarchy brought back 
she did have a great deal of sympathy for the exiled Russian imperial family. And I think she very strongly felt that the fall of the Russian monarchy, and bear in mind, obviously, Tsarist Russia had fought on Britain's side during mm-hmm. the First World War, so it was different. Uh, she, for the rest of her life, felt very protective over the Romanovs, which I did not know going into. You know, she used to send hampers and Christmas gifts, and she would offer cottages and homes to members of Tsar Nicholas II's family. So in that sense, um, I think with Russia, she felt it absolutely. She also, I would say, she went to Paris in 1921, and when she was there, you have these hundreds of thousands of Russian emigres and refugees from the revolution there. She, she talks about um, Lydia Anastasia Cheatham, who was a friend, and dancing with a, a former Russian cavalry officer. So I think that also influenced her into realizing, oh, things have really shifted in Eastern Europe. And there's this communist power in, in the East that is that if it comes to Britain will be, for people like her, completely catastrophic. So yes, she, she had that sense with Russia. With Germany, I think she was she saw it in the way that many patriotic to jingoistic people in Britain saw it at the end of the war, which is that the Kaiser deserved it. And she had some significant or some personal interaction with the dowager empress mm, yeah is it marie marie who was yeah, the, the second's mother yeah yes wife of alexander the third and she marie was sisters with is she is she sisters with edward the seventh's wife yeah so, so there was, was a, there was a connection there where she could actually talk to someone whose yeah. family and by the time she met Marie, I think, is what I got out of your book. The Romanovs had already been murdered yep. in Siberia. So she could talk to someone whose family had been killed by the communists. Entire yes. family. Entire family. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that was that was so interesting to find out that pretty much her. So when Elizabeth and Bertie got engaged in early 1923, one of the first members of the royal family she was taken to meet was his widowed grandmother, Queen Alexandra, who was the Danish widow of Edward VII. And Alexandra's sister, Marie, was, the, as you say, the widow of Tsar Alexander III and the mother of the murdered Nicholas II. And Marie had been evacuated to Britain by the British monarchy when the revolution and the civil war hit Russia. And Marie was there at Sandringham when Elizabeth came to, to meet Queen Alexandra. And quite interestingly, the last public uh, private audience, sorry, Elizabeth granted 79 years later was to a historian called Corinne Hall, who was um, who was writing a book about the Romanovs in exile at the time. So it was like a bookend of her mm. of her career. She also was very uh, protective, often fond of Grand Duchess Zinnia, who was Nicholas II's elder sister. And she had lived at Frogmore Cottage in Windsor after the revolution, but she was brought up to Balmoral during the Second World War. And Elizabeth and Zinnia used to go mushroom picking together and on picnics together. So Elizabeth had actually quite a lot of interaction with the Romanovs, probably far more than people have assumed. So yes, she did have a... And it's it's interesting, she, in the 1950s, I think you can see a remnant of that or the impact of that. She was, I think it was with President Eisenhower, I believe, that she was, um, he, they were next to each other at a state dinner. And she said, you know, really, you can't trust the Soviets and that actually we are going to need to 
like a really hard line against them. And then she sort of said, and that's not, that's, that's, that's just a personal view. But I, but I think you can see a Romanov specter there. She was, she was, um, uh, yeah, she was, uh, she was not um, someone who was under any illusions about what would happen if communism spread. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking with historian Gareth Russell about his book, Do Let's Have Another Drink, The Dry Wit and Fizzy Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. How did Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon meet and eventually fall in love with Prince Bertie, who became George VI? It's peppered very early on with a series of those uh, Edwardian socializing events. So they first met at a children's party hosted by, I think, the Duchess of Buccleuch, who whose husband owned such a large estate in Scotland that when Prime Minister William Gladstone came to visit and asked one of the Duke's daughters, oh, where's the, uh, the border wall of the estate? She pointed in the distance to the mountains and said, that's it. Um, <laughs> So they, they they met when they were children at the Duchess of Buccleuch's children party, children's party. Later, uh, when Elizabeth was 16, she went to an afternoon tea hosted by Lady Lavinia Spencer. So that was Princess Diana's great aunt. And they met there. And that was the first time they sort of met as adults. Neither of them really thought much that they didn't say anything negative. They didn't really say anything positive about each other. They bumped into each other after the war at a ball for the Royal Air Force at the Ritz. And then the moment that uh, Cuba decided that it was time to start flinging arrows was at a ball in 1920 at the home of the, uh, as it later turned out to be sort of the Bernie Madoff of the British upper classes, a guy called Lord Farker, who... um, who it turned out had diddled all of his fellow aristocrats out of fortunes and no one found out until he was dead. But no one knew at that point. It was a lovely party paid for by, you know, all the people he was fleecing and inviting. But Elizabeth went, as she'd just come out as a debutante, and she went and uh, she was introduced to the prince and, and they, they danced a waltz together and chatted and he was smitten at this point. And so he began... Every time his family was in Scotland, he would find an excuse to come over to Glam's, which was the home of Elizabeth's parents, for a weekend or a shooting party. And so he fell completely in love, certainly before she did. And they then started playing tennis together. And he proposed a couple of times. I think initially she said no, because I, I, from what I can tell, I don't think she felt that way about him. The second time she said no, I think she had started to have those feelings about him. But from what I could tell from the letters she wrote to friends at the time and comments by her relatives, I think she was intimidated by the idea of marrying into the royal family because she said, you know, it would be marrying the nation. There would be no really, truly private life ever again. And by the third time when he proposed in January 1923, she had, I think she she decided that he was the one. So that's sort of the process from a from a, a children's uh, tea party <laughs> up to an engagement notice in the Times. And how was their marriage? Uh, they were married, is it 13 years before he became king, 13, yeah. 14? So uh, they had two children in that time. What was their marriage like? Because uh, the only glimpse we get of it quite frankly, here is, is uh, through the movie, The King's Speech. Mm. And then there's obviously The Crown. 
Uh, yeah. And I'd like to ask you a question about that here in a few minutes based on what Dame Judy Dench just wrote. <laughs> but how was their marriage before before all the storm clouds started to gather? You know, I, I have to give credit. I, I'm not someone who's usually too curmudgeonly about historical fiction. I think the emphasis is on the second word there. Um, but the King's speech does an absolutely brilliant job of di- of displaying the dynamic between Bertie and Elizabeth. It's it, in terms of of how um, whether played there by Colin Firth and Helena Bonham Carter, an excellent movie. I'm pretty accurate, I have to say. It, it's pretty on the money. And she was the timeline. The timeline's a little off, I think. And and do you know what? In the timeline, they 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 mess around that. They they flip a few things around. The only, I mean, I with that chronology doesn't bother me in historical Mm -hmm. movies. I think if you get the basic gist of people's personality and events right, great. Um, The the timeline can be left to to nonfiction, but. The only major, now that you said that, actually, the only major inaccuracy they have is that they have Winston Churchill being pro-Georgian Elizabeth, not pro-Edward and Wallace. And he was uh, one of Edward VIII's biggest cheerleaders before the before the Second World War. He really was. Um, Churchill got it very wrong when it yes. came to Edward VIII. So, um, <laughs> Which is interesting because he got it so right about Hitler. And then he got it really the, right about the, the stories about and Hitler and Edward VIII are blood-curdling. Yeah. Absolutely bone chilling. I have to say, I came out of this book from having read recent revelations that have come out of the archives about what Edward VIII actually thought about the Nazis. And I, I, I now agree with Noel Coward, who said we should have a statue of Wallace Simpson in every town in Britain to thank her for sparing <laughs> us from Edward VIII as our king. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm not, I'm not off that opinion. The marriage was incredibly happy. You know, it was, it was. Um, they weren't minor royals, but they weren't in the they weren't front row royals either. They she certainly helped him with a speech impediment. Elizabeth and Margaret recalled a very, very happy home environment. She got on very well with her parents-in-law, which was no easy task. George V was difficult and quite pedantic. So, and she also, you know, the Windsor men, I have to say, the, they, the Windsors are made by who they marry more than most families are. It's just a historical trait. Mm. And George this, and Queen Mary, and that's sort of left paraphrasing a quote from Queen Mary there. But Queen Mary really felt that Elizabeth was the one for Bertie because what she did was she smoothed the anxiety. And as a lot of us will know, anxiety sometimes can manifest itself in panic and temper. And George VI had a temper. You know, he could get really frustrated at himself for not being able to get the words out. And Elizabeth would make a joke of it and calm him. Mm -hmm. So she was, I think, both the steady arm and the backbone of the monarchy under George VI. Go ahead, please finish. Oh, sorry, uh, yeah, that's why I think where I, th- that's probably how I would, I would summarize it. And I think also, you know, George V was not an indulgent or affectionate father in the way that Elizabeth's parents had been so, you know, fun-loving with her. You just and anticipated she, my question. That's oh, exactly great. What I was going to ask. <laughs> great minds. Just the sense that she gave George VI, she gave um, the Duke of York, let's be mm. accurate here at the time, the home life, the loving yeah. family life that he clearly didn't have as a kid. She was the one who introduced silly games like Ibble Dibble and putting pies in people's bed and throwing mud and, you know, singing songs around the campfire and the piano. She introduced that. 
And it made him so happy. He loved spending time at Glam's, the Earl and Countess of Strathmore's home in Scotland. He loved his in-laws. And he also, to give, I mean, Elizabeth almost, I think, would want me to say this. She did not love it being presented that she supported him and he needed support and it wasn't reciprocal. George was very good with her when her mother Cecilia passed away in the 1930s. Her brother Jock passed away in 1930 uh, of pneumonia, although probably Jock had been suffering from pretty severe mental ill health following his service in the trenches in the First World War and um, alcohol insomnia and night terrors in consequence of his service in the war. He also was wonderful with her when her father, uh, Claude, Lord Strathmore, passed away in the 1940s. So they were a unit. They were very, very supportive of each other. George needed more support. Bertie needed more support than Elizabeth did. But I, I have to say, there's the letters when he died in the 1950s, when you read what she was writing to her friends, there is such a, a palpable sense of love that she had for him. And that was quite touching, very touching to read. You mentioned something in your book that I had actually read years ago, uh, just because I find the movie so fascinating, but it's about the movie, The King's Speech. And I'd like you to, to relay to the leaders and legends audience, please, uh, this anecdote about the planning for the movie, mm. the discovery of the relationship between Birdie and Lionel Logue, and the respect that the eventual makers of the film showed to Birdie's mm. widow. It's a terrific, terrific story. This is this is something that I think for me, and I, by the way, I, I love a good costume drama. But I have to say, when I read this anecdote about how the King's speech was developed by its writer, David Seidler, who later won the Academy Award for it, this is how you do it. This is a really respectful way to create a story based on the lives of, of the living or the recently departed. David Seidler found out in the late 1970s, he read an article that reported that George VI had had a severe speech impediment, in his case, specifically a stammer and that he had gone to an unorthodox Australian speech therapist called Lionel Logue. And Seidler decided, um, with great chutzpah, to, to write to George VI's widow, the Queen Mother, and ask her about this, and to say, and to, and to inform her, sort of out of politeness's sake, that he wanted to make a movie about that time in George VI's life. And the Queen Mother, one thing I will say for her is she was very cooperative with historians. She liked to answer their questions. I think she was aware and she loved history herself. So I think that that certainly influenced it. But she wrote back and she answered all of Seidler's questions about her memories of Lionel Logue, the fact that she, how grateful she was to Logue for, for what he had done for Bertie. But she asked Seidler, would it be possible for him to wait until she died? before he made the movie, because this was a time for her that was so deeply personal and in many ways, unhappy memories of how much pain and insecurity her husband had gone through. Would Seedler mind waiting until she died? And then she sort of makes the joke that, you know, I'm in my 80s, like it'll be fine. Of course, she lives to 101. And, um, <laughs> but 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 Seedler said that, you know, he then realized that this, yes, is just a story or entertainment to other people. But actually, it's it's the it's some of the most personal and painful memories of the people you're writing about. So Seedler decided to wait until she died. He did not 
touched the story until after the Queen Mother had passed away. And so I, I to me, I just, I had so much respect for Seedler after reading that story. I thought it was really moving. And also it reminds, just from a perspective of a historian, it, it, what he said when he said, you get the sense of the emotion that these events wield, it gives you a sense of responsibility that you are making a living of people's stories. So you don't have to treat them in a hagiographic way, but you do have to treat them in an honest and respectful way. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Gareth Russell, who wrote, among his many other terrific books, his latest, Do Let's Have Another Drink, The Dry Wit and Fizzy Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. I've never had, I probably had three glasses of alcohol in my whole life. And even I was dying laughing at these alcohol stories <laughs> for the for the Queen, the Queen Mother. Let me ask you a couple other questions. Some of these same questions, just to break it up a little bit. I asked uh, Susanna Lipscomb and Nicola Tallis and, of course, uh, Tracy Borman, all wonderful guests. Yeah, they're, they're all brilliant. If you could go back in British history and box the ears of someone rather hard, oh. whom would you choose? Henry VIII. Henry VIII, and I would not stop. Um, I, <laughs> I find him so objectionably hideous and uh, just a perfect part of the, a part of the rage is not Henry's fault, uh, which is that I feel that this sort of upset, you know, with the charisma he had and the glamour of his court, that it distracts people from the endless litany of staggering incompetence so that she lumbered through the government of England, Wales, and Ireland for 38 years. I would like to, I would smack one ear for Ireland, one for Wales and headbutt him right between the eyes for the North of England. And that would be uh, because I, I think his, uh, his private life has, has, is hideous enough, but it has also distracted from like some really egregiously unnecessary and cruel government policies that were not just um, cruel by 21st century standards, because that's irrelevant. They were cruel by 16th century standards. So Henry VIII, for a melange of personal and political reasons, <laughs> would be the person whose ears I would box and box hard. <laughs> Which premature death Ooh. do you think affected British history the most? I asked this question. I think yeah, it was. I think it was Nicola Talos, uh, Dr. Talos. Well, she immediately said, "Ooh, you've given me a book idea," and I'm Ooh. like, "Just, just put my name on it somewhere. That's all I care about." Yeah, and I'm fascinated by this topic, and I've actually done a couple of history shows, TV shows about this very thing. Which premature, premature death, death affected British history the most? Russell, I'm really excited. All of Nicola's books are so good, so that'll be brilliant. I would say, off the top of my head. Maybe Edward VI, Henry VIII's son. I think the death of his death at 15 really probably took Britain, e sorry, either Edward VI or Prince Henry Frederick, James I's son. James um, I's son. Yeah, I think uh, Edward VI's death, obviously, we saw the Catholic Restoration under his sister Mary I, and then a, a more 
middle road Protestantism under Elizabeth I. I think Edward VI would have turned the country into a much more radically Protestant country had he lived. Certainly that was the direction things were going. And that uh, and what that would have done diplomatically um, to, to ally us. Prince Henry uh, and what we would have done, who our allies would have been, where we would have gone, the culture of Britain would have been very, very different had Edward lived. Uh, Prince Henry Frederick, obviously, had he succeeded, he was, um, had he not died before his father, his younger brother, Charles I, wouldn't have become king. Henry Frederick was a much more aggressively Protestant and pro-parliamentarian prince. So I think potentially we mightn't have seen the civil war of the 1640s had, had Prince Henry lived. Not as I've been talking, though, the one that is probably glaring <laughs> in my head that I can't we believe. Can all I write this book. We can all write this book together. It's Harold II. It would have to be King Harold II now that I've said it. Had Harold II not taken an arrow in the eye at Hastings in 1066, the entire history of the country would have been different. But leaving aside military deaths, Edward VI and Prince Henry Frederick. Not uh, the white ship? Oh, damn it. Yeah. No, the uh, no, or, well, uh, uh, the, premature, the premature death before he took the throne of uh, before, Edward the Black before Prince. The, before the Dance of the Dragons, without the dragons. Yeah. Um, I think Nicholas said, or Tracy, I can't remember, said Henry V. He did die well, in the 30s. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that. Wasn't he? Or I, 42? He was, he was pretty young. I mean, he was young. He was, yeah, yeah, he was 1422 when he died. So let, how much different would American history yeah. have been if Prince Frederick, Prince of Wales, son of George II, yeah. had lived had, and George had, III wasn't king? Yeah. I'm going to stick with Edward VI and Prince Henry over. Um, Prince William and the White Ship, because I think whilst the war was devastating, I don't think it was as impactful long-term as the Reformation or the Civil War. So I'm going to stick with, although the White Ship did cause panic there for a minute, but I think I, I, think I can rationalize. Uh, yeah, I, I think those are the... Neither when I mean I suppose Henry V and potentially the Union of England and France is the one that kind of if Tracy said that that does yeah um, no Wars of the Roses perhaps no Wars of the Roses no Tudors yeah potentially um, Henry V maybe might trump Edward with the sixth but yeah I think I would probably actually now that I say this I had a conversation recently with Linda Porter if Mary the first had not gone down in, in her 40s I think the country could I think she could have been successful in keeping the country Catholic long term um so there's there's do you know what I can't I, I'm gonna I'll just pick Prince Henry um I will I will leave it there I'd love to have Linda Porter on the podcast brilliant She's Brilliant. great. Uh, yeah, Linda's Linda's also just, I mean, great fun. But Linda is, um, Linda has these just like, I mean, the, what's the most recent one of hers I read? First of all, her Mary the First biography is probably the one that changed my mind completely about Mary. But she has, a, she's a great success recently with uh, the Charles II book. Uh, last uh, kind of general question. Who's the most overrated person in British history slash who's the most underrated and I'll just tell you that Susanna yeah, Lipscomb yeah, and and um, Nicola Tallis said Queen Elizabeth I was the most <gasps> overrated. Susanna! I I, I, yeah, I could see that for Nicola, absolutely. Because uh, Nicola's written quite a really good book that's more critical of Elizabeth. No, I don't think Elizabeth's overrated. Um, you stand with Tracy Borman. Oh, yeah. Tracy and I do stand on that together. Yeah. Sort of against the hordes of people charging at us with pictures of Mary the First and Mary Queen of Scots. Um, 
I'm going to say the most, I mean, I've already kind of slammed him. Henry VIII is pretty egregiously overridden, and I don't understand why. Um, who's the most overridden? Um, the most, potentially the most underridden is William III. Uh, because I think uh, Queen Victoria thought he was the best monarch before her. William the Third of William and Mary fame. Yeah, which I which I really surprised me that Victoria thought he was the greatest monarch. But I think you know I've written a chapter about him in my next book. I don't like him very much, uh, in fact, at all. But I but the the sheer devotion to pragmatism that he had it, is quite remarkable. The most overrated could be Oliver Cromwell. I mean, he's hated by quite a lot of people, but Oliver Cromwell. Oh, do you know who I think is the most overrated? It might be. Oh no! Oh, I say this? It might be Catherine of Aragon. Um, She's got a cult. She, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this. Um, You're already in trouble with the Richard the Third people. You. Oh, I know. Do you know what? This is not a safe place for me to rest. You just say area. say trust and be done with it. And just. <laughs> Uh, I mean, no one rated her. So uh, there was neither Poor under lady. nor over. Um, I think sometimes, no, do you know what? The most overrated is Henry VIII. It is Henry VIII. The most underrated is probably Clement Attlee, the prime minister in the 1940s. I think, you know, to 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 handle the withdrawal from many of the, from many of the imperial um, eras and policies and the way that he did and to create a nationalized health service. Clement Attlee did work that patriotic historians have no interest in celebrating, but it really should be. You know, he created a health system that has meant that every British taxpayer, every British citizen has free and universal health care from the minute they're born to the minute they die, if they need it. Um, so yeah, I would say Clement Attlee is the most underrated and the most Overrated. There are a lot of. There's a lot of people who are overrated. Um, oh, who can I say? Who do you think is the most overrated? Richard the Lionheart. I was going to say it could be Richard the Lionheart because um, Atlee's a good underrated, especially given given his coalition work with Churchill yeah. during the war. I'm going to, I'm going to, I can't, I keep bouncing. Do you know what? I'm going to take Catherine of Aragon off the table, actually, because I think there are very few people who would say she's politically significant. Some people do, and I don't think that's true. But I think if you are admiring Catherine's personality, absolutely, that's understandable. She was a tremendously courageous and um, dignified woman. Yeah, I'm going to stick with. Henry VIII polled really highly in a poll of the hundred highest Britain, greatest Britons, and it, it it just it's either oh I know who the most overrated is Thomas Cromwell. There has been a recent <laughs> surge of trying to make Thomas Cromwell happen, and I'm absolutely not here for it. Um, simply because you are well organized does not make you a heroic figure. The man. <laughs> never saw a scandal or a bit of corruption he didn't like. So that Thomas Cromwell is the most overrated and Clement Attlee is the most underrated. Thank you for allowing me to go down many a historical path before <laughs> reaching that. Would you have voted to condemn Mary, Queen of Scots? <laughs> what, what, what are you trying to do to me? Um, uh, no, I wouldn't have, because I think that... 
I, I'm not someone who's massively interested in Mary Queen of Scots, but I don't understand what they expected to happen when you basically detain someone for 20 years and you watch your life slipping away. I'm still on the fence about whether Mary, I think Mary probably did assume Elizabeth was was going to get, I think she probably did know that there was a plot to kill Elizabeth. But I think if you've been locked up for 20 years, you're you're desperate. And so I don't, I couldn't have found it in my, from my own perspective, I, I, I understand why Mary did what she did. Would you have voted to condemn Anne Boleyn? Absolutely not. Um, I know I would have been screaming at her, mention it all, mention everything he ever did. Uh, no, I think Anne Boleyn was the first real, uh, exa- it was the most celebrated example of Henry just trampling over law and common sense and decency, but it had been happening before her. So no, absolutely not with Anne. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking with Oxford educated, holder of a master's degree in medieval history. There's two of us on this podcast. That doesn't happen very often. Gareth Russell, who wrote a terrific book, Do Let's Have Another Drink, The Dry Wit and Fizzy Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. However ill-prepared George VI and his wife, Queen Elizabeth, were to become monarchs, become top of the royal family. Their performance in World War II didn't necessarily betray the fact that they weren't well-prepared. And in fact, in Elizabeth's case, her upbringing may have made her incredibly well-prepared for what they experienced during World War II. Please talk a little bit about the experience of both of them during the war and how important it was for the British people to have a royal family like the Windsors? Um, I Absolutely. I think that she, having seen the First World War, was someone who could see through um, the importance of tenacity and sticking with it. Hitler called her the most dangerous woman in Europe. That's how impressive her role was in, in keeping British morale there. And she said to an equerry who worked for her, if I had been made to leave or flee, I would have died. That was how simple it was. So the, 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 the sight of seeing them stay throughout the bombing raids was of immeasurable benefit to British morale. You quote, you have the famous quote, and then we're going to ask you the last five questions. We ask all of our guests. Sure. We'll do it fast. Um, it's something like the king won't leave. I won't leave without the king. The children won't leave without me. I leave without the king and the king won't leave. It's, it's a great quote. We ask the same five questions of all of our podcast guests. Gareth Russell, what was your first job? I worked in a supermarket. What was your first concert? I think my my first concert was a Mozart concert. It wasn't very. It wasn't. I'm not. <laughs> not I'm not picking concerts. Mozart. Mozart's <laughs> Requiem. Quite grimly. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Probably be the Leopard by um, Lampedusa. It's a novel set in 1850s Sicily. It's just one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? I would love to have seen the coronation of Anne Boleyn, I think, to see sort of the pageantry of the Tudor monarchy at its height. If you could have dinner, last question, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, living today, talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? I like good fun at dinner parties, so it would 
it would probably be Dolly Parton or Princess Anne. <laughs> Can I say not bloody likely? <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Gareth Russell, author of Do Let's Have Another Drink, The Dry Wit and Fizzy Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. It's a wonderful read. You'll read it in a weekend because it flows with wonderful stories and anecdotes. The writing is wonderful. Thank you so much, Gareth, for coming Thank on the podcast. Thank you. Such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.